0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC, from breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look. The Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Okay, let's begin this morning with the mental illness on our street, the brain injuries we're seeing on our street. Everyone has seen this. And I'll tell you, this subject really took off on the show last week. I had the mayor of Nanaimo on the show the other day, Leonard Krogh. There is a big problem with homelessness, mental illness on the streets of Nanaimo. And he says, look, enough is enough. It is time. It is time to reopen some institutions for people who are mentally ill, even requiring people to go into care, even against their wishes, if that's the case, if they are severely mentally ill on our streets, they've got brain damage. Have a listen to what he had to say to me the other day here.
1: As I say over and over again, no one's asking for a return to, you know, one floor with the cuckoo's nest and nurse ratchet, but smaller secure facilities in communities so that people would have access to their families, to their loved ones, uh, should be the norm for care in our province.
0: Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Eleanor Sterko, B.C. United, M.L.A. in Surrey. Very pleased to welcome Eleanor back to the show. Eleanor, thank you very much for coming on this morning.
2: Hey, Mike. It's been a while, and I'm happy to be back.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to have you back here, too. And I know that that interview with Leonard Krogh on last week's show really jumped out at you, too. And, and what did you think about what he had to say there? Because he's calling for uh, an expansion of secure involuntary care, okay? So for people who are obviously mentally ill on the street, even if they don't want to go into treatment, maybe there should be involuntary treatment. What do you think of that?
2: Well, I think that he's right, of course, and we've been clear, BC United's been very clear from the start and from when we released our Better as Possible plan that we think that in certain circumstances that there is a role for involuntary care to to take place because it is the compassionate thing to do. We've seen all of us. I can't say that there's probably a single British Columbian who has not seen someone who is truly tremendously suffering on the street. I just went down to the West End for a meeting on Monday evening. I saw a person completely doubled over with wounds on their body and people just simply walking by that person. If I had been back on the street as a police officer, it was certainly someone that I would have pulled my car over to do a wellness check on. We have people who don't have the agency anymore to be able to make a choice so we at least need to be able to bring people in to, to stabilize them enough to give them an opportunity to make a decision about their path going forward
0: right and speaking of your your past as a police officer in british columbia let's let's say you did witness a situation like that i mean we do have a mental health act in british columbia it is possible you know to commit people to get care how difficult is it to do that
2: Well, there's certain criteria that have to be met under the Mental Health Act in order for a person to be brought into care. Um, You know, they're at risk of deterioration. They're at risk to themselves or others. Um, They have to be able to have an affliction that can be treated in a facility and that that treatment will make a difference in their care and that there has to be an appropriate place for that treatment to take place. So, you know, we do have actually already the ability to, to do this. But the problem is, is that our ecosystem of care and housing is insufficient. And particularly, we're dealing with things. And when you spoke about, you know, brain injury, for example, we don't have in British Columbia any specific housing to deal with a growing number of individuals who actually have acquired brain injury because of their addiction.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think this is maybe something people don't realize. Like people, I think, are familiar with the concept of mental illness. But then when you throw in this issue of, Brain injury. And I mean, if you talk to people who work with, with homeless people on the street, people who are desperately addicted. This comes up a lot. You know, that people are suffering from a brain injury. Sometimes it's a pre-existing injury and, and that's affected their life. But sometimes it, it's the nature of the drugs that people are taking on the street too can, can cause brain damage. Have a listen to Leonard Krogh on this point because we talked about this on the show last week as well. This is Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh. Let's listen.
1: We know that over half the people in the streets have have brain injury issues, let alone addiction issues, let alone mental health issues. And I'm not saying it's the majority of the people in the street. You could be talking 5, 10, 15, 20%, but they are the people who are living the worst lives of anyone in British Columbia. And we really collectively as a society aren't doing much to make it better for them. And part of those options surely requires you to provide for secure and voluntary care.
0: Okay, Leonard Krogh, the mayor of Nanaimo on last week's show. My guest is BC United MLA Eleanor Sturco And Eleanor, as you know, Leonard Krogh is a former NDP MLA, and, and he's not afraid to kind of cross swords with this NDP government and criticize where he thinks the government is coming up short. And he believes the, go- the government is coming up short in this file. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, you know, I, I think that it's very... I applaud um, Mayor Krogh for for his stance. I think that he's putting the best interest of his community above political interests. To be honest, I would be surprised if there wasn't other NDP um, members who feel this way. And uh, it's unfortunate that they're not pressuring the government from within to do the right thing. But he, you know, Leonard Krogh is being compassionate when he's asking for involuntary care for individuals. And this doesn't mean, and I, I really like the way he put it, this isn't every single person, not everyone with homelessness or with an addiction has a mental illness. Not everyone right. who's homeless or addicted has, you know, entanglements with the criminal justice system. Um, but there are individuals on the street right now for whom it is no life. It is a tremendous amount of suffering. They're, they've lost their ability because I can tell you just from, I've revived people on the street with uh, naloxone um, and their first compulsion after um, being revived from certain death was to immediately use drugs again. That is not, um, you know, if I were to choke on a carrot, for example, my first impulse wouldn't be to eat another carrot because, you know, that's the power of addiction. It has created a situation for individuals where their illness is such that they have lost that ability to be able to, and and I'm not talking about everyone, this is very severe addiction. They they don't have that opportunity to make this decision for themselves. So we need to be able to assist them, even if it's not necessarily even a long time to be held involuntarily, but enough to be stabilized so that they can have that agency restored, be able to understand the situation that they're in, and to be able to be presented with options so that person can right. then make that decision for themselves. And hopefully we can convince that person to be able to, to start taking a path towards recovery.
0: Right. What about human rights in a free and democratic society that we live in here? Because this is the objection that's raised frequently. This whole concept of, of a government official taking someone effectively into custody against their will, holding them against their will and the reason they shut down Riverview way back when was concerns about mistreatment of people abuse that was going on in some of these large mental institutions you know you heard Leonard Krogh there talk about the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and and he's saying that it doesn't have to be that way again he's he's saying like you can set up smaller community community based facilities where people have access to their visitors and their family like how do you, how do you assure that if people are committed or they, they are brought into secure and voluntary care that they're not going to be abused or their rights are not being trampled on?
2: We need a level of transparency that certainly doesn't exist with the government we currently have, even in our regular health care system. Um, yeah. So we need transparency. We need to be clear with the public on what our intentions are. It needs to be publicly known um, what length a person can be held in, in involuntary care. And for example, even Now, if a person is under the BC Mental Health Act brought into um, involuntary care, they still have their charter rights. They have the right to uh, legal representation and to argue against having um, involuntary care. So, I mean, those are are things that would have to continue to go forward. But when we talk about freedom and we talk about a person's human rights, I think that what we're talking about is people who have completely lost their freedom. It's been stolen by the power of addiction by by substances that are on our streets right now that we have never faced by illnesses and complex situations that have been created by by toxic poisons in the community that we've never encountered so we need to think outside the box we can't be looking at our traditional means of helping these individuals we need a new way and you know what they've lost their freedom to addiction they've lost their oh. autonomy and their human rights to drugs and and the way forward is to have a system created where we are actually restoring their freedom by giving them the freedom from their addiction, so that they can participate in making those decisions for their future.
0: Thank you for your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you, and thank you to Mayor Krogh for um, you know coming forward and starting this discussion again.
0: All right, Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Preston Kincaid. Preston is a certified home inspector. He's got a, a busy home inspection company in New York State. And he is super popular on social media. I encourage you to check out his TikTok. He's got more than a million likes on there. On TikTok, a lot of his videos have gone gone viral, especially with his unfiltered, I think, very courageous take on on the real estate business. And I got Preston standing by. Let's have a listen to one of his TikTok videos here. This is one of the ones that went viral. What's it like to be a home inspector? Have a listen to this.
3: I wish you guys knew what it was like sometimes to be a home inspector because it's the only job that I can think of where you get punished and you get hated for being good at your job. You go into a house and you find all the problems and you tell the buyer, you know, hey, here's all the stuff you're buying with this house and somebody's going to be pissed off at you. They call you deal killers.
0: Yeah, they call you call you a deal killer. All right, let's check in with Preston Kincaid, now certified home inspector. Preston, thanks a lot for coming on today. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, you bet. And first of all, congratulations. All your success there on uh, social media. Your videos are super popular. I've been checking out a lot of them here in the, in the last few days. So let's talk a little bit about the work that you do there. And that was a really interesting, uh, clip that we just played there that for you doing your job. And if you do it correctly, you do it properly, you always got, you're always making kind of people unhappy. Why is that? Because they, they want the deal to go through. So they don't want to give, they don't want to give you to give the seller any or the buyer any bad news, right?
3: Yeah, it's true. It's kind of the dirty little secret in the real estate industry is uh you know, clients are led to believe that realtors are there and realtors are supposed to be there to act in their best best interest. Yeah. But underneath the surface, um, what a lot of people don't know is that uh, most home inspectors rely on realtor referrals. Yeah. Most clients rely on their realtor to make the proper recommendations and referrals. And uh so what you end up with is kind of this, this unspoken pressure to be a non-alarmist, to try to soften things up, try not to create a lot of drama in the transaction, because when you do, those realtors will stop referring their clients to you.
0: Right. And do you get that kind of pressure from like real estate agents or the, or the owner of the home, the seller, or, or both, I imagine, sometimes?
3: You know, it's really common for the sellers to be angry with home inspectors. We, yeah. I don't know too many home inspectors that pay much attention to that. However, yeah. the realtors involved are usually realtors that um, you're hoping will refer clients to you. Yeah. And so there's always kind of this, uh, you know, there's this pressure, there's this this fear that if you do your job well, those realtors are going to then label you a deal killer among their, their circle of realtor friends. And uh, you start to see a decline in business.
0: Would you say that that is kind of getting worse? Like when you take a look at the real estate market and, and you operate in the United States, but I know the market you're in is, is going through similar kind of contortions that we're going through here. Mm-hmm. You know, prices are prices are sky high. Um, the rental market is brutal. Rents are way up. The housing supply is down. You know, building starts are slow and not keeping up with pop, the population. So, I mean, it's yep. the same thing where you are. What is your, what is your sort of analysis of this market right now? Is there, is there more of that kind of stuff going on? Like people sort of hiding, they don't want you to blow the whistle on defects.
3: So, you know, it's interesting. So I actually had a video go viral. I think it was a week or two ago where I I laid out um, all of the dynamics that I see and the metrics that I'm tracking in real estate and why I don't think that uh, the high prices are really a bubble. I think we're only going to see price uh, house prices, housing prices go up. Um, we're going to become more of a rental uh world really in in a sense. We're seeing um, a lot of investors gobbling up homes. we're seeing Airbnb changing the dynamics. So home prices are becoming more and more expensive. And so what happens when that, you know when you when you have kind of a gold rush mentality in real estate, you see a lot of new realtors jumping into the market. I want to be clear about one thing though, not all realtors are like that. There of are course. some really good, ethical realtors out there. Right. And it's funny that when you look at, when I look at my metrics, I track my realtors. I have a close, I have um, 1900 plus realtors in my database and I carry a green list and I carry a blacklist. There are realtors. I will not accept referrals from. And I have a green list of good ethical realtors um, that I know are, you know, definitely looking out for their clients best interest. Right now, there's nineteen realtors on that list. So, if you think about that, you have a one in one hundred chance of getting a realtor that isn't on my green list.
0: Now, wow, that's it's very interesting what you just said there about, about the housing market. let's 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 touch on that for a second because sure, the sure. video you referenced there um that went viral here in the in the last week or so, I, I watched that one. And you know, there's a lot of people looking at these housing prices and thinking like, well, something's got to give here. Re- interest rates going up. You know, is, is this a bubble? Is the bubble going to burst? You don't. So you don't think that housing prices are necessarily going to come down. You mentioned Airbnb, right? Like Air, Airbnb is yeah. exploding in popularity here too. Your thoughts?
3: Yeah. So um, no, I don't think it's a bubble. I don't think this is going to come down. We might see mild fluctuations. I think we'll probably see some dips and some uh, some mild valleys. But at the end of the day, what we're going to see is an upward trend because this really just boils down to basic supply and demand. Yeah. So you've got you've got Airbnb and some of the other um, similar websites that are taking huge gluts of homes right off the market that are sitting vacant, uh, mostly vacant for doing you know tourist and, and vacation rentals, and that so that's a nice chunk of real estate that's just not available uh, to purchase. Um, then you look at things like uh, builders. You know, material prices have skyrocketed. Things have become hard to get. Um, and so there's a lot of people that have really been having a hard time making decent profits on, on building homes. So they're kind of getting out of becoming home builders. Um, you know, we might see some adjustment through, uh, we might see, you know, interest rates coming down a little bit, which might cause some of that. But at the end of the day, you add in uh, longer mortality rates, you add in immigration Yep. And all of a sudden, you start to see that the demand for housing is going up and the supply for housing is going down. Yep. And in any industry, you're going to see price hikes.
0: Speaking to certified home inspector Preston Kincaid, I, I recommend his TikTok videos. Hey, Preston, let's listen to another part of one of your videos here. And this gets back to what kind of some of the stuff that you're seeing out there as a home inspector, especially when we're talking about you know property flips and stuff. Let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. So here's one of Preston's TikToks.
3: We care so little about our fellow human beings that we can't even just make things safe. Like, we're perfectly okay flipping a house with a bunch of electrical defects, covering things up, taping things up, painting over mold. Just sell somebody your problem and move on with the money. And it's starting to get to me. As a home inspector, seeing real estate become what it is, I'm telling you, something has to happen. Okay,
0: that's really, really powerful stuff, especially when you think about, you know, deliberately hiding defects, like painting over mold. Like, how often do you see that kind of stuff?
3: Every day of my life. Whoa. Yeah, almost every single day. I've had a long run this year of really bad flips. And it, it, uh, you know, that little mini meltdown that I had on TikTok, that was a few (laughs) weeks ago. Uh, I didn't realize that was going to kind of strike, you know, kind of touch a nerve and I didn't realize that was going to go viral, but, um, I've had, this happened, um, three days ago. I had another client literally sobbing in their driveway, just sobbing. You know, the, the client had said, Preston, when I saw this house, I felt like it was my destiny. I felt like I was home. And then I have to tell her that this house has some very, very serious problems. And you could just see the look on their face, and you know it's it, giving people bad news, you know, constantly like that really starts to get to you over time. Yeah. And uh, I think I might have even lost my top referring agent on that one. You know, well, it's. I was, it's well,
0: really- I, was, I was just wondering about that, like when you sort of do these videos that are kind of unfiltered, you're kind of telling the truth as you see it and, and being very honest. I mean, how does that impact your business? Do you do you sometimes lose lose customers over that?
3: Yeah, no, I do. It definitely yeah. is. In, this year, especially, um, I lost my number one referring agency. The uh, the brokers of that agency instructed all of their agents not to refer clients to me because I'm, quote unquote, a deal killer that finds things the other home inspectors don't. Ooh. That's verbatim what what was relayed to me. Uh, when you lose 11 or 12 agents off of your, you know, referring realtor list, that's uh, that stings a little bit.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Would you say that do you see any evidence out there like buyers are being pressured to, to not get a home inspection?
3: Oh yeah, no, it's a thing. Yeah. And um, it's, yeah. it's about as unethical as you could imagine. Yeah. What's happening now is sellers, because they have so many offers to choose from, they're using the waived inspection as a, a way to sweeten the deal to say, okay, we'll just buy it. We'll waive our inspection. And what happens is when you have, you know, a number of offers and, a bunch of them are saying, "Well, waive our inspection." The sellers aren't going to choose somebody that's going to require an inspection. So people are feeling the pressure. They know their deal is not going to get accepted. Um, it's really interesting to see a couple of the states now because they're they're starting to move forward with legislation that's going to make that illegal, which I'm happy about.
0: Yeah, 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 for sure. And would you say for anyone who's out there looking to buy a condo, a home, townhouse, would you say? always get a home ins- home inspection. Now, I know I know I got a feeling you're going to say yes. And, you know, some people might say, "Oh, of course, that's what you're, he's going to say. This is his business. But mm-hmm. would you just say that that's just normal common sense? You should always get an, a home inspected before you buy it? What
3: I you know, of course, the obvious answer is going to be yes. And everybody yeah. assumes we're going to say that. But here's what I would say. Go check out a good number of my TikTok videos. Go watch them yeah. and then ask yourself that question should I get a home inspection? Because when you start to see the stuff that is hidden, concealed stuff that we're trained to find. And then I use my TikTok comments as a data source. I use it as metrics that I can kind of, you know, put my finger on the pulse of what's happening out there. And the most common response I get is I wish I had you as my inspector because mine sucked. Mine didn't find anything, but there was major problems. And that gets right back to our initial um, discussion around, why are home inspectors by and large starting to become softer and finding less problems, you know? And so it's really important, not just to yes, get a home inspection, but to also know how to find a good home inspector. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not always a good idea to go with your realtors recommendation and it's always a good idea to vet the home inspector and research them properly.
0: Kristen, it's been a pleasure to have you on here and talk about your work, and uh, congratulations on everything you've done on, on social media. And I appreciate, and I, I love the way you're speaking out. Thanks for coming on.
3: Hey, thanks for having me. Have a great rest yeah. of your week.
0: Okay, let's talk about this unaffordable housing market here now in Metro. This has been a focus for us here on the show. Not only the market to purchase a home, prices moderating. A little bit, but they're still super high and unaffordable for many people who have to. They have to rent a place instead. But rents also going through the roof. A one bedroom apartment in Vancouver, three thousand dollars a month. A two bedroom in Vancouver, nearly four thousand dollars a month. How can anyone afford this? I spoke to the CEO of a very successful fashion company on the show last week. Now, she, she's making a CEO salary. Super successful entrepreneur looking to rent a house, a detached house for her husband and, and their kids. $6,000 a month, even higher than that. She was telling me how the rents were going up almost on minute by minute. And she's looking at some places because demand's so high for these rentals. How can anyone afford this now? Regular listeners might remember my discussion with Carl Eaton. Now, here's the thing, right? Even if you have a a well-paying job, you got a good job. It used to be you got a solid job, and you could afford to rent a nice place. As Carl Eaton, okay, makes like nearly seventy-five k a year in a good job, trying to find a place for himself and his son. He's a single dad, and he's he couldn't find anything he could afford. His son, who's 18 years old, decided to skip going to college, went and got a full-time job instead to find a place to to rent that they could afford. He said a lot of people were telling him, "Hey, hey man, just just move. You got to get out of Vancouver. You got to move away." Here's, here's what he told me on the show. Have a listen to this. So I've looked all the way as
4: far as Coquitlam, and it's twenty four hundred to thirty four hundred for a two bedroom. After all the deductions uh, said and done on my uh, out of my pay, I guess I could stop putting into an RSP and stop saving for my future. I can't just uproot and, you know, I, I guess people say you maybe you should, but really should I? I've worked here for 40 plus years, paid taxes. Like, why should I be, you know, forced out?
0: Yeah, he's saying like he was born in Vancouver, he grew up in Vancouver, and now he's saying people are saying, well, your only option is to move, leave Vancouver. You can't afford it. What is the answer here? Well let's listen to david eby here the premier okay so he has been talking a lot about okay we need more government intervention you need more government involvement in social housing now he just he recently went on a trip to singapore and he was checking out some of the social housing projects there i'm going to talk about that in just a moment let's have a listen to what david eby has has to say here about public housing have a listen For too long,
4: uh, government stepped back from providing the housing that people need. Uh, As a result, speculators stepped in, buying and flipping homes for profit at the expense of everyday people who needed to find a place to live. And that failure uh, drove the housing crisis that we're seeing today and has left us with a critical shortage of the housing that we need.
0: Okay, so he said government has gotten out of the business of housing, and I guess he wants to reverse that. Is that the right way to go? We need more government involvement in housing. Let's discuss with my guest, Mark Lee. Mark is a senior economist, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and he recently visited Singapore to check out the situation there too. He's written a very interesting article on it. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming on. Yeah, good morning, Mike. How's it going? It's going good. Thanks a lot for doing this. And I think this is a really interesting kind of angle on this because Singapore is a very interesting kind of case model to look at, right? When were you there?
4: Uh, I was there in March. So I was actually there before the premier went on on his trip. No no relationship uh, there whatsoever. I was there visiting family. Um, and it was interesting yeah. because my, my cousin, who is a corporate lawyer, was really excited to drive me around and show me all of the various uh, public housing uh, that's been developed in Singapore. And a lot of the newer stuff really looks like the high-end condos that you'd see in in, in Vancouver. Um, what's interesting about it is that Singapore has much more tightly regulated and controlled uh, its housing market. It also started from a position of housing crisis in the 1960s when it first became an independent nation. Uh, And what they did, I mean, not everything that Singapore does can be replicated in DC. It's a you know very different uh, economy, and it's a smaller uh, city-state compared to DC. But I think there are some really key pieces that we could learn from. Um, One is that the government got involved in a big way. They you know rolled up their sleeves. They created what's called the Housing Development Board, Uh, and you know in the first few years they you know added 10% to the housing stock. Uh, And, you know, within uh, 10 years, they had, you know, 30% of uh, Singapore citizens uh, living in these flats. And basically, it's a non-profit model because, you know, the Singapore government was able to use public land, uh, they created a whole land acquisition strategy to get land out of the private sector into the public sector, and then they have this uh, housing and development board develop those into properties that can be sold at much lower prices because you're not paying a private developer's profits or you know a number of the fees and and taxes that you would pay. Uh, in Canada, so it's evolved a lot over the years um but you know you can get like a one bedroom unit in Singapore from you know anywhere like one to two hundred thousand dollar range, which is wow. <laughs> incredibly cheap by uh, uh by Vancouver standards. But I think the key is like actually getting out there in a big way and building a lot of new supply and targeting that at folks uh, who need it. This is also um a version of home ownership it's not they're not just gotcha. building uh rental housing stock they do do some of that but it's only a very small proportion of the total this is a sort of an affordable home ownership model and the reason they can do that is because they the land stays on a 99-year lease uh with the government and we do have a similar model here in in bc on leasehold properties um and because you're taking that land piece you know more out of the equation then you can you know, provide lower prices overall so sort of land and like going ahead and building in a big way are the, the two key planks
0: okay it's a really interesting comparator for sure and when like you said there's a lot of big differences between british columbia and singapore which you know obviously that's true but when you take a look well the population's not that much difference though isn't it's almost the same isn't it
4: yeah, I mean, five and a half million people in Singapore, which is about equivalent to BC. About the and same as here. Singapore was yeah. also a British colony, so the the legal traditions around land are actually very similar uh, to BC. I think where the yeah. differences come in is that it's it's a much less democratic society. There's a lot. Right. Um, You know it's not as open and the types of regulations they put on so like I talked about the prices of those new units but there's also a resale market and then uh, but the resale market is is at much higher prices more closer to Vancouver so they need to put in provisions that you need to live in your uh, unit for at least five years before you can resell it there's restrictions on who gets to buy those new units in the first place uh, and then the conditions on on resale so they've had to, to, to lean in much more heavily heavily to regulate and manage the overall market. But, you know, they've done so in a way that I think has been um, a real economic benefit to the nation as a whole, because you don't have households spending like most of their income, just keeping the roof over their heads.
0: Okay. It's interesting that we're talking about place, places that are largely owned, right? Like, we're not talking about rentals, as you pointed out. We're talking about places that people can actually buy and own. Now, what happens if you buy one of these these government Condos, I guess, and you own it now. Uh, can you flip it for a profit? Like, w- what happens on the on the after sale market? Isn't it going through the roof too? Like everywhere?
4: Yeah. So you have to hold for uh, five years uh, at least, oh. uh, and they've also put restrictions on people um, buying like second and third properties. At least they have an equivalent of the property transfer tax there. They call it the stamp tax. So you pay no. Stamp tax on your first property, which makes a lot of sense, but then it jumps up to 20% uh, of the total sale price for a second property, and 30% for third or more properties. So they're really trying to incentivize, you know, one home for for every uh, a Singapore family, and then they have a bunch of other targeted incentives on the front end so that lower income households can get into that home ownership market in the first place.
0: Okay, what do you say to the argument that? You know, I kind of hear people screaming this at their radios right now. Like, if you want to screw something up even worse and make a bad situation even worse, put the government in in charge of it. So if you, why why would you argue in favor of more government intervention or government ownership of these things or government control of this rather than, like, let's cut the red tape and let the, you know, harness the energy of the private sector to build all these homes we need?
4: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, like, like Singapore shows that, you know, you can actually have competent government uh, in, engagement in, in this area that does have uh, positive results. One thing that's happened in Singapore is that you know, now have a very large installed base of, of owners who have an interest in keeping prices high. So the government is now like really has to weigh that in its you know can in, in its uh in its management of the the overall market but I think also if you look to the Canadian or British Columbia example, we did have extensive government involvement uh, in supporting the development of affordable housing in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's just that we stopped doing mm. that for, for a few decades. Generally speaking, a lot of housing advocates um, here in Canada are, are are pushing for a model that's more like um, government would contribute land, so land that we already yeah. own or that we acquire, and then we would turn that over to the non-profit sector to build housing and manage it and essentially pay back the upfront costs of building it over like 40 or 50 years. So that way, the the rent that you need to charge on the whole property, um, you know, is at a break even level rather than what's the most profitable for uh, a landlord or a developer.
0: Hey, Mark, last question for you. Speaking of land, we know that land is very valuable and expensive in certainly in Metro Vancouver and like how do you overcome that hurdle like how much how much land does the the government own that you could build housing on
4: well i mean there's land that the that municipal governments have that provincial governments have that federal governments have there's a lot to get started on i think above and beyond that you'd want to look at some kind of land acquisition strategy. So in particular looking at buying up parcels before they get upzoned for higher density. So a particular piece of land might be expensive at say $2 million, but if you're building, you know, 10 to 12 units on it, then the cost of that land, you know, goes down uh, dramatically. But mm. the, the problem is if you upzone in advance, then the existing landowners capture almost all of the benefit of that. So you need to get ahead of that curve.
0: Mark, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk now about the myths and the realities of fertility treatments. Lots of people out there trying to start a family. Lots of people have trouble, too, getting pregnant. This impacts a lot of people, more than you realize. Does that include you or a loved one? Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Ginevra Mills. Dr. Mills is a fertility doctor at Olive Fertility Center in Victoria, Dr. Mills, thank you for coming on today.
5: Thank you for having me, Mike.
0: Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it a lot. And I think this is an an issue that should be talked about more because I I think it affects more people than when we realize. What do the statistics say on that? Like how many people uh, have challenges with fertility?
5: So nowadays, approximately one in six couples will experience difficulties uh, getting pregnant and starting their families.
0: Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's common. And does that increase? Let's let's say as as a woman gets into her later later years, does that does that infertility rate rise?
5: It certainly does increase, and we're seeing that our um, the demographics of the patients who are experiencing infertility are changing a lot. Where we're having a lot more people uh later in life like in their mid to late 30s who are starting their families at that time and are finding that they're having a lot more difficulty getting pregnant and we do know that as um women get older it does get become more challenging to spontaneously get pregnant and also gets more challenging for fertility treatments to be as successful as we'd like
0: yeah for sure and and especially as people have children later in life which is becoming more more common i'm i'm sure that you're very busy there at all of fertility. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you wrote a really interesting article about this recently, about some of the myths out there. So let's talk about your myth number one in the article you wrote, infertility is only a, a woman's problem. That's a myth, right?
5: It is certainly a myth. So um, in the same way that it takes two people too often to, to get pregnant, it means that, yeah. that that the issues around getting pregnant can involve either one of those couples and up to 40% of couples who experience infertility uh, have a, a male component either as the main reason why they're not getting pregnant or also contributing to the reason that they're not getting pregnant. So we often have Women uh, who will come to our clinic uh, on their own and say, "Well, I I am not having I'm having difficulty getting pregnant, and I just want to make sure everything's okay with me." And oftentimes, uh, we it's better to have both uh, people in the couple come together to isolate those um, rule out all possibilities.
0: Yeah, and are there treatments available for men as well if there's a problem there?
5: Absolutely, we do have um, a lot of treatments that are available to help couples who have male factor infertility.
0: Okay. How about a healthy, healthy lifestyle? Like I've, I've not, I have friends of mine who are super healthy, right? They're fit, they're active. Um, and yet they, they still have, they still have trouble, right? So even if you're fit and healthy, can you have fertility problems?
5: Absolutely. Um, so the, 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 the myth here is that if you keep your body healthy, and you don't do anything, uh, you know, you don't drink excessively or do drugs or eat unhealthy foods and exercise well, that you'll be able to preserve the health of your eggs or the health of your sperm. And unfortunately, um, in the same way that all of these healthy lifestyle interventions don't prevent you from getting older and aging, um, it doesn't prevent your ovaries from aging, and it doesn't prevent your testicles from aging. And so as a result, the cells in those in both your ovaries and your testicles that are responsible for making the eggs or housing the eggs and and also for making the sperm um, are going to go through those same aging processes. So even if you've mm-hmm. been living a rel- relatively healthy lifestyle your whole life, or even if you've just changed your lifestyle, although sometimes we we know that making changes from an unhealthy lifestyle to a healthy lifestyle are good for your overall health and therefore good for your current fertility potential, um, it doesn't preserve it as you get older.
0: Okay, here's another one. My wife and I were actually discussing this last night and that is, okay, let's say you've got a couple they're trying, okay they're trying to get pregnant and it's just it's just not working out. How long how long should you keep trying before you go to see a fertility specialist? Because I remember my wife saying that she once spoke to someone and told her, well you should try for a year. Try for a year before mm-hmm. you give up and seek and go talk to a specialist. You can go see a specialist before that, right?
5: You can. So yeah. uh, the the one year rule, it really applies to the a couple who um, let's say are under the age of 35. Don't have any risk factors for having experienced infertility, so uh, those could include um, a history of uh, significant history of infection in the pelvis, like pelvic inflammatory disease, or if they had a ruptured appendix or surgery like that, that could be a risk factor for blocked fallopian tubes. If you know that there's a low sperm count, or maybe that the, the man has a history of an undescended testicle, that might be a reason why. If the woman isn't releasing an egg every month, they're not having a regular period. Um, So having really short periods, or very, very long duration between their periods, that would be another reason to seek out earlier care Um, and or endometriosis. So if a woman has endometriosis, that would be another reason to come early. So if you have any sort of sign that something isn't going on, isn't right, and you're under the age of 35, for sure you could that year. But if you do have any of those symptoms or signs, or you do know that you have endometriosis or you had um, surgery on your pelvis before, or you had injuries, severe injuries to your testicles or previous surgery on your testicles, um, those would be signs to say, I need to get like an immediate referral. And if you're over the age of 35, um, a referral after six months of trying or sooner, if you're very worried or anxious about it would be warranted.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, go, go get it checked out. My guest is Dr. Ginevra Mills. Uh, Dr. Mills is a fertility doctor, Olive Fertility Center in Victoria. I know there's a, there are a range of options and, and treatments that people can try. What about, you know, one you hear a lot about a lot is IVF, right, in vitro fertilization. How, when is that uh, needed?
5: So there's a lot of different reasons why we recommend in vitro fertilization. And um, for, you know, you'd asked earlier about problems with with the male or if there's problems with the sperm. Sometimes when there's very severe problems with the sperm, in vitro fertilization may be our only option. Um, And also if somebody has blocked fallopian tubes or both of their fallopian tubes are blocked and the sperm and the egg can't get together inside the body, then IVF is the only option for, for patients in this situation. But IVF is also a very good option for people who have what's called unexplained infertility. So when we do all the tests and things seem to be coming back normal and we just can't seem to find the reason they're not getting pregnant, often IVF is a very successful treatment for that. But it's not the only treatment. And oftentimes uh, a lot of people will do IVF for age-related fertility decline, or this is as, as the female partner is aging um, and has um we might do IVF to increase, uh, to speed up the time to an ongoing pregnancy. Or if that couple is looking to expand their family, maybe beyond just one child and they want the option to have more IVF is a really good option for potentially having embryos that you can keep in storage and use for future Mm. pregnancies.
0: Okay. What about, what about freezing eggs? Is that, is that a possibility?
5: Yeah, absolutely. We do offer a lot of egg freezing cycles and often Mm. we see women under the age of, uh, you can freeze eggs at any age, I'll say that first, but we do often see a lot of women under the age of 35 because as word is getting around that it gets harder to get pregnant as as people get older and yeah. people, as you said, are delaying childbearing. We do have a lot of people who are coming and they can you can freeze eggs, which is basically like doing the first half of an IVF cycle. We can get your as many eggs out of your ovaries as we can and freeze those and come back and use them in the future.
0: Okay. Here's another myth here that you wrote about in this one. <laughs> I, I remember uh, talking to my wife about this, what we went on our own journey here. Okay. Try, trying to get pregnant here many years ago. And, uh, it all mm-hmm. worked out. It all worked out. Fortunately, I'm happy to say, but we did, we did see a doctor and, uh, it helped, um, sexual positions. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I remember discussing this with my wife, like, is there a sexual position that has a better chance of producing a pregnancy? Or is that a myth?
5: It, it is really a myth. Um, yeah, Maybe it's not a myth that some people want to bust, but um <laughs> there there's the the fact of the matter is is if you're getting the semen where it needs to go, which is in the back of of the vagina, then it's it's got the possibility to get there. And right. positions that allow for deeper or less movement of of stuff isn't going to make a difference on that sperm. You know, we're talking about, millions of sperm that are that are getting uh, deposited there and and millions of years of evolution that have allowed uh, allowed this to happen so right, right. um but there's no in the same way that no position makes it better there's no position that makes it worse either
0: continuing my discussion now with dr ginevra mills dr mills is a fertility doctor olive fertility center and as you heard dr mills say before the break there this impacts a, a lot of people what, did you say one in six couples
5: Yes, one in six couples for yeah. sure. Yeah.
0: That's that's a lot. And uh, the good news is there there is help available. If you have questions questions about fertility treatments, call me right now. I got open lines right now. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. One thing I was wondering about is let's say you are you need you need help, you need treatment, you're trying, it's not working out. Do you is it covered by Medicare? I know some of these some of these procedures are not covered, I don't think, right? What is covered and what's not covered?
5: Right. So um, your initial consultation with the doctor and all of your follow-up visits with the doctor are are all covered by MSP. And most of the testing that we offer to rule out the most common causes of infertility are also covered by MSP. And some of the medications that we use in different treatment options um, may be covered by private insurance, uh, just like other medications. But unfortunately, a lot of the procedures that we offer to help uh, p- couples get pregnant are not covered by MSP. Yeah. Um, and you know we're we're seeing I know that the government does offer a, a tax credit, which is not unfortunately not always the best option or accessible for people.
0: Yeah, so like if you were looking for like an IVF in vitro fertilization treatment, that would be you'd have to pay for that, right?
5: Correct. So you would yeah. you would have to pay for the actual treatments
0: and everything. Is, it, is, it, is this this starts to get expensive? Like you know, first, it's interesting. I, I it's kind of heartbreaking to think that you know some people maybe need this treatment or need help to start a family and they can't afford it.
5: Yeah, it's definitely probably one of the hardest parts of my job is is yeah. when I have patients who really need IVF to get pregnant and yeah. they're not able to do it because of financial constraints.
0: Yeah. 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 That, that's something I know there's been a, there has been a campaign to, to change that in BC, but I guess the campaign will have to go on uh, for that. What, uh, like when people come to your office, what are the sort of the more common questions that you hear? Like when people present to you for the first time, what, the, what do people want to know right off the bat? They often
5: want to know, what I if I think that there's a possibility that they they can get pregnant um most of the time there is a possibility most of the time we can help the patients and there's very few situations where there's uh for medical reasons or based on the testing results or sometimes financial constraints that we're not able to accommodate or reach those goals for patients but um The other more common thing that I have people tell me, um, especially as it relates to age-related fertility decline, is that a lot of people say, if I had known that it was going to be this hard to get pregnant um, at this age, I wouldn't have waited so long to have kids. And I think that that's probably the most difficult and most heartbreaking thing to hear a patient say, because um, it's just, I think it's a lack of, of education especially for our younger people who are out and and doing things and living their lives and always believing, well, I I can have kids later. I can have kids later.
0: Right. And, and you were, when you're talking about some of the age related challenges here and we talked a little bit about, you know, uh, a woman's chance of getting pregnant later in life, does that affect men too? Like as, as men get older, do they, can there be problems for men too?
5: We're starting to see studies coming out showing that, as men get older, uh, especially over the age of forty, it it can introduce other challenges to conceiving a a healthy ongoing pregnancy. We don't see that affecting it to the same extent as uh, uh, age-related fertility decline in women. And this has everything to do with the fact that a woman a woman is born with all the eggs she'll ever have in her ovaries. and um, they age, like I said, as as uh, every other cell in the body ages, and there's nothing we can do to change that or replenish that or fix that. Uh, whereas sperm is constantly being made in the testicles. So even though um, the, the testicles are getting older and the cells are, are getting older, the actual sperm themselves are constantly being made and regenerated, and that's where the biggest difference comes in.
0: Okay, it's an extremely important service that you provide, and thank you for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it.
5: Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a wonderful surprise to be invited, and uh, I'm always happy to talk to people and get the word out.
0: Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.